Castillo. Um, let me uh, give you a little bit of a challenge this morning. Today's challenge is look for grace in every song that we sing. A matter of fact, if you're in a so-called Christian church and you're not singing about grace, you're probably not in a Christian church. Amen? You might as well uh, try to write a poem about uh, the Pacific Ocean and not use the concept or the word water, right? So uh, let's, let's stand together and, and sing about God's grace. Come thou fount of every blessing. Matter of fact, it's grace that allows us to even praise the Lord in the first place. This, this tells us that. Come thou fount of every blessing.
Amen. Bow with me. Lord, our prayer today includes the first verse of just what we sing. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart. Lord, adjust my heart to be able to sing your praises, to be able to understand the mysteries of your word, to be able to uh, do your will. And Lord, we just uh, give you all praise and all glory uh, today, Lord, that we are able to be here and, and celebrate the risen King. Uh, Lord, help us again, as the song says, tune our hearts, tune our minds so that we would be in total sync with be in praise and with your word. And uh, Lord, that our lives would be transformed because of this experience. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would, uh, would ask that you would uh, fill out one of these connection cards, please. And you can find those in the pew back there in front of you. Especially if you're a first or second time guest with us, we would love to know you're worshiping with us and that we would be able to reach out to you and just say thank you for being here. Uh, on the back side of that card there, there's some uh, opportunity to have prayer requests and we'll be faithful to pray for those. So just uh, keep those with you and then put those in the offering plate as you exit uh, today. All right? Um, so the next song we sing, it's, it's, a, it's a new song, but yet it's a hymn. Did you know that you could have a new hymn? Not, not all praise songs are new and not all hymns are old, right? So it's, it's a new hymn uh, written by Getty Music, and it reminds us that uh, we can come behold the wondrous mystery defined by Webster as something that could be difficult or even impossible to understand or explain. Well, in God's Word, it's not impossible. It can be difficult, right? But, uh, but we can, through the work of the Holy Spirit, understand it. So let's, let's sing together about beholding that wondrous mystery of God. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of a king. He the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In a longing in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who
Christ was resurrected, those of us who believe in Him will be resurrected again someday. Amen. The scripture says in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We're going to sing about that just now. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin Lost without hope and no place to begin Your love made a way to let mercy come in When death was arrested and my life began was redeemed, only beauty remains, and my orphan heart was never the same. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance, when death was arrested, my life so free oh your grace so free washes over me you have made us new now life begins with you released from my chains I'm a prisoner no more amen she was a ransom Rejoice as though heaven had lost. 
Amen. Amen. Would you read the scripture with me? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Many years ago, we learned this great little chorus that reminds us that it's all about grace alone. Let's sing it together. Grace alone, which God supplies, strength alone, He will provide. Christ in us, our cornerstone, we will go forth in grace alone. Grace alone. We can only worship Him. We can only trust Him. Amen. Sing this great old hymn. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take Him at His word, just to rest upon His promise, just to know the saith the
this our prayer. Lord God, give me grace to trust you more today. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I prove him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh I was reading a preaching text book this week, and the writer said, and I quote, Our fear is that the people we lead are far too busy looking for a word from God in places other than where his voice is clearly revealed. His word, right? So I want you to get 
into the Word of God until His Word gets into you. Is, is this not the practice of the preacher? That the Word of God is in us. We preach the Word of God. We want it to be in us. That's it. The reason your pastor preaches what we would call text-driven sermons is because text-driven sermons exalt what is sacred, God's Word. That's why we preach God's Word. Everything we do at this church begins and ends with a love for God and His Holy Word. So, with that said, I want to ask you a question. Why would God show us rich mercy and great love? Why would God save us? What is the ultimate purpose of God in our salvation? You may remember the day or the hour when you trusted Christ and believed. Uh, the second verse of Amazing Grace was grace that caused my heart to fear and grace, thank the Lord, my fear relieved, right? How precious did that grace appear the hour? Maybe, maybe you remember the hour you first believed. Maybe you don't, but here's the most important thing. You know if you're alive in Christ or not. You may not can name the date nor the time or the hour. As Spurgeon once said so famously, I think he said something about kind of like this. You can't tell exactly when the sun rises, but you know when it's up, right? And maybe you can't remember the day or the hour. That's The important thing is, are you alive in Christ? So the follow-up to that is, why did God save you? Why did God show mercy and grace to you? Well, today we get to see the so that, or for the purpose of, why God actually raised you up, why he made you alive, seated you with Christ, why he showed his rich mercy and grace toward you. We get to see it in our text before us, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved now here's the emphasis today and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that here it is for the purpose of that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable or surpassing Riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want you to just remember and know one thing when you walk out of here, and that's this. God enthroned us with Christ to display his grace. That's why God made you alive. That's why God raised you up. That's why God seated you is so that that enthronement with Christ is to display surpassing, immeasurable, rich grace of kindness toward us. So, that's your point in your bulletin. God enthroned us with, with Christ to display his grace. Now, two verbs. Raised us up, seated us is where I'm getting the word enthroned, right? To raise up, we've learned that last week, is the fact that we're connected with the Lord Jesus. Back in Ephesians 1.20 where... God raised him up where? From the dead. So it refers to us or in us 
with a spiritual life that we now possess as a result of Christ's resurrection. He was not the only one that came forth from the grave 2,000 years ago. If you're saved today, you were raised with Christ. You've been resurrected spiritually, right? With Christ, this is what's taking place in your life. The other verb, seated, is translated caused to sit down with. Just think of the magnitude of that particular wording. It's our present exaltation of a point of comparison. Where's Jesus right now, folks? Seated in the heavenly places. And this text says that not only have you been raised up, but you've been seated with Christ. And what could that mean positionally? Well, the privileges and honor and authority that are involved in enthronement of Christ, or the enthronement of Christ are actually some of the privileges and honors and authority that we have as his people. Because we are in Christ Jesus. Think of that for a moment. That first word raised is a compound word that brings together a term that all of you kids know. Because you do it all the time, probably too much. You sync your phone with music. Right? Don't y'all love to do that? You download it. You you get synced up. Well, that is the literal rendering of this compound word. And folks, when God raised you up and made you alive, he synced you with Christ. And so all of the privileges that the Father gives to the Son, he also gives to his children. Why? Not because of you. Not because you're great but because you're in Christ. That's the benefit of being made alive, raised, and seated with Christ. In other words, you are enthroned with him. Now, don't miss this phrase. So that in the coming ages. In order that. So this is the purpose clause of why God did all this. Made you alive, raised you up, seated you. you, you do you see it in the, in the passage? It, it is the purpose clause. It is the answer of why God saved us. Now... I would argue that it makes sense that if our God is God, he gets to establish the purpose of why he saves people. Right? Who chose you? Or should I say who chose who? Ephesians 1, 4. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God is the provider and the supplier Of this salvation. Would you all agree? Hebrews 12 says he is the author and finisher of our faith. God is the author of your faith. He's the provider. He is the supplier. God sent his son into the world to save sinners. He sent the son into the world to forgive us and to be our atoning sacrifice. So since salvation is of God, he's the source and provider God also is the sole determiner of the purpose of salvation. I think it's kind of simple. If God is the origin, source, provider, supplier, then he is also the one who determines the great end of the purpose of which he saves people. I think that is clear from the Bible. So this this terminology of God being the source, origin of all, you can see that clearly in Romans chapter 11. If you take your copy of God's Word, if you don't get there before I do... Just put on the brakes and listen. Chapter 11 of the book of Romans, verse 36. Notice how clear this is. This is Paul's grand summary of how great and glorious God is and in, in who he is and his person. 11, Romans 11, verse 36. Check this out. 
For from him, what does that mean? He's the source. For from him and through him, what does that mean? He's the means. And to him are all things. That means he's the end and the purpose. He's the source. He's the means. He's the end purpose of all things. And then the Bible says, to him be glory forever. Amen. So, God gets to determine why he saved us. And notice what the text says. So that in the coming ages he might show, what is it? Show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So our God saved us in order that he might make a display. Now, the word show is used in the ESV in order to show Well, that word show is a little too common in usage in our day for us to really grasp what it means. As a matter of fact, when you study the Greek language, you'll find out that it actually means to demonstrate or better yet, to put on display. In other words, God did this in order that he might display something. So follow the logic. God saved us through his rich mercy, great love, in order that he might make a display. Now, here's the question I always ask. Is this word used anywhere else? We, we interpret in the scripture. We, well, it's got the word show, demonstrate, to make a display. Is it used anywhere else? Well, if you'll flip over to Romans chapter 9, we'll see a usage of Romans 9 of how God actually made a display of someone. Romans 9, verse 17. Give you a chance to get there. Here's what the Bible says. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So here, God is making it clear that he raised up Pharaoh in order that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth, and that God might show his power. So Pharaoh was, in a sense, a display case for God's power. This is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy. I think you'll like this one a lot better. All right? 1 Timothy 1.16. Listen to this. You better listen to this one because it's an example of why you have trusted Christ today. And Paul gives it to us. 1 Timothy 1.16. Listen to the word. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost... Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, just as Pharaoh was used to display God's power so that his name would be known throughout all the earth, Paul says, I am a display too. I'm a display case. I'm a living demonstration of the perfect patience of Christ. And God saved me in order to display his perfect patience So that other sinners may have hope. God did this. These verses teach us that God does what he does. To display or to demonstrate something for people to see. Now, if you go down here in Ozark and walk around, you're going to see in the front of certain stores a display case. When I was a kid growing up in Bowman, Georgia... We only had about 800 people that lived there. We only had three or four stores, period. And one was a grocery store, and you didn't really put meat 
out front or a loaf of bread on display. But if you went to the Bowman Drugstore, they had certain things in the window on display. Why? Because they knew if they did, the kids would say to their parents, I want that. Right? That it certainly was put up there for a reason. Now, what does the owner place in a display case? Garbage? Does he put what's in the back that hasn't sold in months and years and stick it out there on display? No, he puts things out there he wants people to see. As people come by and look, they stop and look. It captures their attention. Well, God saves sinners to make a display. And he's not displaying how great you are. He's displaying what a mess you are and what great grace he gives to save sinners. And so he puts them on display, right? Okay, with what? What does he put out there? What is he putting on display? The text says the immeasurable or surpassing, surpassing riches of his grace is what he's actually putting on display. Now keep that window analogy of a display in your mind. What has God put right in the window for people to see? They're surpassing riches of his grace. The word surpassing is where we get our word hyperbole. But be careful. Be careful. The meaning here is not simply to use a term of exaggeration when it's probably not needed at all. Right? That's what we usually think of. This means it's a degree of extraordinary uh, or a, a degree of extraordinarily pointing out something on a scale where the extent goes far beyond anything you could ever possibly imagine. So, so the ESV says it's immeasurable on this degree of scale. Or surpassing is given on some. So here are a few examples to help you know. Extraordinary, supreme, and I like this, extreme grace. Extreme is the best word. So Paul will use this term three times in Ephesians. So we might say that Ephesians may be deemed an extreme book in some ways, right? It's a book of extremes. He uses the word three times. Here's the first one, chapter 1, verse 19. He says, the surpassing greatness of God's power. Would y'all say that that's extreme and extraordinary and supreme, the power of God? You better believe it. The second one is in 319. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses. In other words, a degree that goes further than the ordinary, beyond the point of knowledge. That we may know uh, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So take those three in your mind. We have the surpassing power of God, surpassing love of Christ, and the surpassing riches of, Christ, of grace. And we could say that Ephesians is an epistle of extremes. So God is talking about the immeasurable, surpassing riches is the next term. Why would he use the term riches? Well, it's the idea of wealth. In other words, this is valuable. It's inexhaustible. God's wealth is that way. Now, folks, I say that so you will put these together in your mind. Surpassing indicates a comparison of great extent of how awesome it is and how we can't even think of it, how on the extent of degree, it's way up there. But then when you go down to riches, we're talking about something that is wealthy and valuable. There's nothing more valuable in life than the grace of God extended to you. So it's supreme and it's valuable. And God doesn't just have 
grace in a display window. He has the surpassing riches of his grace in there. So we're talking about the extreme wealth of God's grace. John Frame said that the grace of God, the grace is God's sovereign unmerited favor given to those who deserve wrath. Now we've used the term grace at times to say it is God's unmerited favor reaching out to the undeserved. That's a foregone conclusion that you didn't deserve it. It's more than that. Actually, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 reminds you of your condition. You're not just undeserving of it. You're ill-deserving of it. You are a person of wrath without Christ. Again, he reminds us here, we were dead in trespasses and sins. I like what J.I. Packer says. He says this, The grace of God is love freely shown toward guilty sinners, which is contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their demerit. That's pretty good, isn't it? Because it is. It's, it's totally unexpected. And God, we, we think that we only deserve the severity of it when you truly know your sin. But God actually gives us grace in order to save us. So God has shown us rich mercy, great love for a purpose. God takes his extreme wealth of his grace and he puts that on display. Now, if you read back in verses 1 through 3, you should conclude that we needed extreme grace. It needed to be extreme. It's not as if God says this, okay, I'm going to give them a little bit of grace. They're not quite as bad as I thought they were. So actually, I'm going to give a little bit of grace, and they're going to do a little bit on their part, and it's all going to be good. In other words, it's going to be like a co-op. God does his part and we do ours so that I get a little bit of glory for what we're going to do. Folks, that's not grace. That's not what the Bible teaches. When God is going to show grace to people like us, it's extreme grace. It has to be abundant. It has to be overflowing. To borrow a few songs, it has to be grace that is greater than all of our sin. It has to be marvelous and infinite, matchless grace, freely bestowed, right, on all who believe. That's the grace of God. So I've come to a conclusion over the years. Looking at myself, I needed extreme grace. And if you've honestly looked at yourself in light of the Word of God, then you can admit that you needed grace that is greater than the usual. Abundant, inexhaustible, to overcome your dreadful condition. You needed extreme grace. A little bit of grace wasn't going to do it for me. It had to be extreme. It had to be abundant. So, in the South, we often told this story, or heard preachers tell it, about a young kid who had a desire to join the local Baptist church. And as I've done with some of you, we have a sit-down, and we talk about theology, right? What, what do you exactly believe before you join the church? Have you trusted Christ? Have you followed in believer's baptism? The list goes on. Well, they ask him about his own personal salvation. And the little kid says, well, God did his part and I did my part. And your response would be my response. Okay, wait a minute. Now, what does that exactly mean? And the little kid, once he was prodded a little more, said, I did my part, which was the sinning. And God did his part, which was the saving. And folks, I want to remind you this morning that sinning is all you ever brought to the table. Period. 
It was extreme grace that brought you up from a place of deadness spiritually into life. It is the grace of God. The only thing that we ever bring to the table, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, is sinning. Andrew Lincoln gives this wonderful statement. If the raising of Christ up from the dead to sit in the heavenly places was the supreme demonstration of God's surpassing power, then the raising up of believers from the death, from death to sit with Christ in the heavenly places is the supreme demonstration of God's surpassing grace. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, I agree. In Christ alone, we have the demonstration of God's supreme power. And as Christ comes to us in salvation, we have a demonstration of supreme, wealthy, valuable grace. So, please see the next phrase. Check this out. I'm over in Romans. That won't work. Chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, uh, of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, When Paul talks about grace, folks, he's just not talking about it in theory. He's talking about something God has actually intended to do to benefit his people. Does that make sense to you? The surpassing riches of grace is demonstrated. How is it? It's demonstrated in kindness toward us who believe in Christ Jesus. Kindness. Have you ever been driving down the road or been involved in something called random acts of kindness? Well, that is a socialistic ethic that is actually used in our world today. It's a modern ethic that needs to be placed in the trash. And why do I say that? Well, at the heart of that is ethical things, but they're random. The Bible teaches when God acts in kindness, it is intentional. Last time I checked, when kindness is given anywhere in the Bible, it's intentional. It's not random. So, It's easy to dumb this down, but folks, understand something. When God acted in grace, he did so in kindness toward you so that you would be the beneficiary of his kindness. And it was intentionally planned that he would actually reach out in kindness. So, this is what Paul means in Romans 2.4. Have you ever read this verse? He says, the kindness of the Lord is meant to lead us into repentance. And then in Titus 3, 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So, folks, when God acts in kindness, there's nothing greater than for him to act in the kindness of his son in order to save us. That's the greatest act of kindness that you could ever wrap your mind around. This is not some theoretical kindness. This is real, intentional kindness of God wherein he extended his grace toward you to save a dead sinner. And all of that is grace. And it's all because God was kind toward you. And because we're in Christ, God deals with us as he has dealt with Christ. Don't you understand that it's not anything in you that caused you to be seated with him? He did this and made you alive and raised you up and seated you all because of his kindness toward us. And that's grace when God does this. Here, please hear, God shows you kindness in Christ Jesus. And that's why we must stand on the the, the truth of God's word that there's no other way to the Father except through the Son. That's, That's why we have to say the ultimate kindness of God toward sinners is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. 
John Bunyan, y'all know this guy? He wrote a book that's very popular called Pilgrim's Progress. But he also wrote something else, and I love the title, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. (laughs) That book could have been written about me. Don't laugh and smile. Don't look so spiritual because it's you too. Grace abounding to the chief of sinners. Here's what he says. Sinner, you think that because of your sins and infirmities I cannot save your soul. But behold, my son is by me, and upon him I look not on but upon him I look not on you. I will deal with you according to as I am pleased with my son. Isn't that awesome? With this truth in mind, let me remind you that if you're unsaved today, please don't despise the kindness of God. Are y'all listening? If you're lost today, please do not despise the kindness of God. It was kindness from God that you were able to hear a sermon today. That you came to this church, no matter what you're playing with, no matter what you're doing with your time, no matter if you're checked in or checked out of the sermon, that's irrelevant to me. What is relevant is that the Word of God has come to you in the fullness of the Scripture. And God is kind for you to ever hear the gospel even one time. He doesn't have to do it. Remember, He's the originator. He's the giver. He's the supplier. He's the determiner of our salvation. And God has acted in kindness toward you. And if you're saved today, do I have to remind you of the immeasurable kindness of God toward you? Oh, my goodness, folks. Never forget that the greatest kindness our Father has ever shown is when he reached way down in the miry clay. Set your feet upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and put a song of praise in your mouth. That's the greatest act of kindness to ever be known. Listen to this last line. Actually, it's the first line of verse 7, but the last line of my sermon. Listen to it. So that in the coming ages. What does this mean? It gives the length to how long his grace is going to be on display. Get the display case back in your mind. How long are these display cases of grace going to actually be on display? For all of time. It's going to be on display for all of time. This gives that length. One more quote. F.F. Bruce. The reason I quote these guys is because they say it way better than I ever could. All right? Here it is. The expression implies one age supervening on another like successive waves of the sea as far into the future as thought can reach. Throughout both time and eternity, the church, check this out, the society of pardoned rebels. That's us, is designed by God to be a masterpiece of his goodness. You want to see the goodness of God? Just look around in this auditorium. If you're saved today, you're a recipient of the goodness of God. You are a display case for God's rich mercy and his great love. Why? Because grace was extended to you. So, that means I think that we ought to be walking and talking displays of God's grace. So how are you doing, FBCO? If you truly are on display as a recipient of the grace and kindness of God, then what about your walking and what about your talking? Are you really that kind of display? Are you a display of sovereign grace, like Paul would say? Are you a display of the kindness of God in Christ Jesus? There's another text that talks about adorning the gospel of God. 
How are you doing in that regard? Are you living in such a way that you're adorning the gospel? In other words, if, if you're a recipient of kindness and grace, should we not live like it? I mean, how can you be made alive and act like you're dead? Baptist, are y'all listening? I've said this to y'all before. You know we're going to go up first in the rapture. Baptists are. Because scripture says the dead in Christ shall rise first. Right? Look, if you've been made alive, you ought to act like it. If you are a trophy and a demonstration of the grace of God, we should live like it. God saved you to put you on display now and forever in the ages to come. So, God's purpose in our salvation is that his glory, demonstrated through his grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus, might be put on display. In other words, when it really comes down to it, Jesus Christ is the one on display because he's the one that has redeemed our hearts. So what does this passage teach us about the gospel of grace? Well, I think it teaches us that the gospel is all about grace from beginning to end. There's not one crook or cranny. You ever use that word in Missouri? There's not one crook or cranny about this gospel that is not absolutely chalk full of grace. Right? And I know we harp about grace in this church a lot. But if you're a born-again believer, you should never get tired of grace. You should never, ever get tired of the grace of God. Here's what Charles Spurgeon said as he approached verse 7 to preach it. Hear it again. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's what he said. I've gone around the walls of this city text. T-E-X-T. I have counted its towers. And I'm utterly unable to express myself by reason of joyous astonishment. I feel as if I must sit down and lose myself in adoration. It is indeed a royal subject. The exceeding riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. Can you just stop and think how glorious it is to consider God's grace extended to you in kindness in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what Spurgeon said. You know, there were some popular preachers that lived in his day. George Whitfield, John Wesley, right? Here's what he says. Whitfield and Wesley might preach the gospel better than I do. But they could not preach a better gospel than I do. Amen. When you, when you read that verse, you're like, Lord, what a gospel. Immeasurable riches of grace toward me. That's the gospel. Hey, folks, there are a lot of people out there that preach the gospel better than I do. But they'll never preach a better gospel than I do. Because it's in the Bible. It's the gospel of grace. So what does the passage teach about God's purpose? It teaches us that salvation is ultimately about God's glory. Right? And I know that shocks some of you. But salvation is not first about you. It's not. It's first about the God of the Bible. It's first about God's glory. And I know that shocks some of you. But the gospel is the good news about how God saves sinners. And I'll remind you. Those who could not save themselves. And he does it for his own eternal Glory. So, the gospel points us to the glory of God. The gospel points us to the grace of God. Folks, it only makes sense that if the whole end of the God's salvation is to display His grace, then that view of salvation is most biblical that magnifies the grace of God the most. Uh, It only makes sense, folks, if a man believes that his own works are foundational for his salvation... That person is a heretic. 
If anyone teaches in any denomination or any church or any religious organization that you have to do a successive amount of works or any work at all in order to get your salvation, that is heresy. I can prove that in verse 8. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Say it. Not of works, lest any man should be boast. Paul says it clearly. By the works of the law will no man ever be justified. If you think you can work your way to heaven, you're like that hamster inside of that wheel. And you're going to run yourself to death. Run, 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 run. And you're never going to get anywhere. You know why? Because humanity cannot save him or herself. Dead people cannot resurrect themselves. And the Bible says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that we are dead in trespasses and sin. So, if a man believes that his own work is in any way foundational for his salvation, that, folks, is heresy. I don't have any patience for that. No matter what denomination, no matter who's teaching it, if it's a works-based salvation, then it is clearly anti-Bible, right? Let's make another statement. If a man believes that his activity, like you are the one who actually gave the faith, gave your repentance as a contribution to your salvation, that is a grievous and weakening error. But thankfully, there's enough gospel in that to take a man or woman to heaven. But I think it's deficient. I think that is a deficient view Otherwise, you haven't read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you haven't listened to one sermon, 2 through 10, right? So this view of salvation that makes the most out of grace and the most out of God and the most out of God's glory has to be the biblical view of salvation. We, we want it to be the most biblical view so that we can honor God with His glory and for His grace. But here's what I would remind you of. Is it still enough for us to live in a weakening and grievous era that robs God of his glory? Folks, that's all I'm telling you and I've always taught you at this church. It doesn't matter to me where you fall on this line. But I will tell you this. It's not right to weaken God's glory over your salvation. You better make absolutely sure that God gets the glory. That it wasn't your work that got you this salvation. Last time I checked, you were dead And not only were you dead, you were under the wrath of God. And there's not anything in between deadness and God making you alive in this text. You were dead and alive. And your first cry that you were alive was belief and faith. That's what the Bible teaches, clearly. So, don't get spazzed out. Don't don't lose your mind. It's okay if you don't agree right with the preacher. If you're okay saying, I contributed my faith. I'm good with that. But I think it's a weakening of what the Scripture teaches. I think it is an error. I think you have your faith because God gives you the faith. For by grace are we saved through faith. And that, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We're going to unpack that one, not next week because it's Mother's Day. Yes, you mothers are so thankful you don't have to hear a theological sermon on Mother's Day. Oh, but it will be somewhat theological, right? It has to be. But next week we won't. But next week, the next after that, we will hit, for by grace are you saved through faith. So how does God get the glory in our salvation? He does so by making us a display case for his glory and grace. So here we are. I mean, 
folks, how are we doing in this area? If we're truly redeemed and we're a display case, what's your commitment level? What's your disposition? What's your perspective on life? Oh, this religion thing, is it's okay to get a little bit of Jesus. It's kind of like that little bit of coffee in the morning, a little bit of Jesus. That'll help me through the week. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches if you've been made alive and you're a display case for grace, then there ought to be commitment. There ought to be a desire to worship God. There ought to be a desire to get into his word. If you never have a desire to read his word, what does that say about a display case? I mean, what does that say about a trophy of grace if that trophy doesn't ever want to look at the God that saved him? That makes no sense to me. It's because it's anti-Bible. If you're saved, made alive, you love God, you love the church, commitment is not something that scares you off. Oh, well, I'm not sure I want to serve in that area. Really? You don't want to serve the one who took you from the place of death and brought you into life? Right? Am I making sense? Some of you are looking at me kind of dumbfounded. I mean, folks, should it not make a difference if you are... If, if you are the one that's the trophy of grace, should you not look different? I think the reason we're not making a difference in this world because we're not different. We look just like the world. But last time I checked, we're not supposed to be like the world. We're not supposed to love the world, nor the things of the world. Because if you love the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in you. There's a difference between Real, genuine salvation and being a display case. So here, let me, let me end it. Here's the deal. I think it will also manifest itself in a witness to this lost world. Right? I mean, if God has resurrected your heart, would you not want somebody else to be saved? Would you not want somebody else to be made alive? I mean, I don't think all the pictures in the world of people starving overseas is going to do it. What will do it is if the joy that Jesus put in your life when he made you alive is real, then you can't stand it. You've got to tell somebody about it. Because you want them to have the same joy in Jesus that you have. That is the greatest motivation to share Christ in this world than any motivation you're ever going to get from a thousand pictures of people starving all over the world. Jesus Christ is the joy of our lives when you're truly saved. So here's the deal. Let's be conscientious that we are on display And we are display cases for God's grace and kindness toward us in saving us. So God has said in effect, look what I can do with such a mess. And that's you and that's me. We deserve wrath. But God gave us everlasting grace. We deserve wrath. Verse 3. God, but God gave us everlasting grace and made us alive. We ought to be thankful people. Amen. If you're lost today, don't reject the kindness of God. Amen? Don't reject the kindness of God. And here's the kindness of God. He extends grace to sinners. And he can save anybody, anywhere, anytime. God can do that. If you're saved today, immeasurable riches have been given to you. Wealth unexplainable. Extreme grace has been given to you. We ought to be worshiping people, Bible-believing people, God-honoring people, walking with Jesus, talking about Jesus. Is all this making sense? Amen. Let's stand together. Brother David, would you lead us? Join together in singing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. 
I think when we sing Amazing Grace, we have to sing the last verse, right? That's just something that has to happen. Well, you know, it's akin to Revelation 5 where the Lamb is praised right now in, in heaven by the very hosts of heaven. Don't you know that when you sing praise to Jesus Christ, you're joining the angels in heaven? And you're going to be doing that for all eternity. Some of you Baptists need to get used to it now. Open your mouth and sing. Because if you're redeemed, you have a song, right? As a matter of fact, you're going to sing a new for some of you that can't stand new song. When you get to heaven, you might break because you are going to sing a new song when you get to glory. Let's sing, right? Mike, can you find us when we've been there for 10,000 years? Thank you. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining God is good. Listen, next Sunday, we only have one worship service at 1030. We uh, thought about this, and we actually, I preached to the choir, a few choir members and the band for about eight or nine weeks. And we came back on Mother's Day. And now we get to come back all together on Mother's Day the next year. That's pretty awesome. Amen. So that means... Uh, you have Sunday school at 9. We used to start Sunday school at 9.15, and you came at 9.30. So we learned something. Let's keep 9 and 10.30. Therefore, maybe you'll start Sunday school by 9.15. But Sunday school's at 9. Worship's at 10.30. And it's Mother's Day. Uh, to God be the glory. I hope you have a wonderful week, ladies. You men be good to your wives, mothers. Kids be good to your moms, right? Amen. All right. Some of you guys look guilty already, right? Uh, all right. Look forward to seeing you next week. To God be the glory. Brother David? Let's sing this before we go. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Come, behold the wondrous mystery. Slain by death, the God of life. But no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected, as we shall be when he comes. God bless. Have a great day.